So much has been written about the Rastafari, yet we know so little about why and how people join the Rastafari movement. Although popular understandings evoke images of dreadlocks, reggae, and marijuana, Rastafarians were persecuted in their country, becoming a people seeking social justice. Yet new adherents continue to convert to Rastafari despite facing adverse reactions from their fellow citizens and from their British rulers. Our guest today is Charles Price, professor of anthropology and author of Becoming Rasta, Origins of the Rastafari Identity in Jamaica. In his book, he draws on in-depth interviews to reveal the personal experiences of those who adopted the religion in the 1950s to 1970s, one generation past the movement's emergence. Uh, Charles Price uh, teaches in the Department of Anthropology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's been engaged in social justice-oriented activism and research since 1990. His research writing and activity revolve around black identity uh, oral and life history, welfare recipients, access to college, action research, participatory evaluation, organizing, advocacy, community development, and social movements. Uh, Professor Price's attention is focused especially on Jamaica and the American South. He was co-founder of the Action Network for Social Justice in Tampa, Florida. He served several years as co-chair of the Black Students Alliance at CUNY, that's the City University of New York Graduate School. He served as vice president of the Rastafari Centralization Organization in Kingston, Jamaica, and uh, served several years as a board member of the Socialist Scholars Conference and is currently co-director of the Center for Integrating Research and Action at Chapel Hill. He is the author, of course, of Becoming Rasta and uh, the co-author of Community Collaborations, Promoting Community Organizing. And uh, Professor Price joins us this morning. Good morning. Greetings, Jared. Greetings Th to you and to your listeners. Thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning. Uh, why don't we uh, begin with just a little bit of, of background. If you could maybe tell listeners a little bit about yourself and um, why you decided to write uh, Becoming Rasta, Origins of Rastafari Identity in Jamaica. Okay, well, I think you um, provided a good bio there, so maybe I'll just um, talk a little bit about what motivated me to write the book. Perfect. Okay, um, in some ways, a summary, the synopsis that you gave um, sums up my motivation. Um, you know, there had been a growing amount of uh, writing, research, academic and otherwise, about the Rastafari, just, you know, literally um, exploding, going into the 80s, into the 90s. And one of the things that really concerned me was the fact that, you know, there was all of this material on the origins of the Rastafari, the beliefs and so on, but no one was really asking the question, you know, well, you know, why would you, why would somebody become a Rasta? Why are you a Rasta, you know? Or, you know, how does a person become a Rasta? You know, and to me, you know, given my own experience as a Rasta, that seemed to be a very fundamental question to ask. But it was also uh, a deeper question in that, um, you know, for much of the history of the Rastafari, the Rastas were, were pariahs, they were outcasts. And so, you know, an even bigger question is, you know, why would somebody want to join uh, a group or a movement, you know, that is um, a pariah movement, uh, you know, outcast, you know? And so that was another set of questions that I thought needed to be explored because it signaled that something really deep was happening there, that people were attracted to this stigmatized identity, um, took it on, embraced it, and committed themselves to it 
for um, decades. And so in order to understand the uh, the stigmatization or uh, the consideration of Rastafari as pariah, we should probably have some basic understanding of what is meant by uh, Rastafari. So uh, if you can um, tell our listeners a bit about the precursors, and I know that that could, you know, that encompasses a lot, but, you know, touch upon some of the, the watershed moments in the development of uh, Rastafarianism, and then uh, we can move into kind of a contemporary definition of the uh, philosophy of Rastafari. Okay, so, well, if it's okay with you, Jared, maybe, maybe we should uh, start with a sort of general definition, because I'm not quite sure if your listeners uh, really uh, have a good sense of, of what a Rasta is, or who, you know, who is Rasta. Perfect. Is that okay? Yes. Um, I would say first and foremost, if we could come up with a, a general definition, we should say that the Rastas are a religious and racially conscious people, and that irrespective of the diversity of the Rastafari, one of the common strains that we'll find across them is the belief, the, the, the view, the overstanding that Haile Selassie is divine, and also um, a commitment to blackness as an identification. And, you know, there is also a range of permutations of, you know, um, the themes that suffuse this blackness. And, you know, one of the common themes, I would say, is black nationalism. And, you know, there are different variations of that. But, but we see two strains, and one is what I would call a sort of romantic strain, which is um, really focused on the religious and utopian elements of, of blackness to view that black people are um, the, the children, the people of God, that God will redeem black people, that God will destroy um, white, uh, white supremacy, and so on. And then there's a more pragmatic, a modern, excuse me, modern orientation, which focuses on the politics and the economics of blackness, you know, um, governance, black liberation, um, education and black history and culture, and so on. There seems to be a, a big theme, you know, uh, inherent in what you said on um, kind of re-education, that there have been, you know, centuries of uh, this conditioning that, that um, you know, black is an inferior race or that black is ugly or, or whatnot. And it seems that um, part of the black power is really um, well building into, you know, the title of your book. It's really not just about... Um, social, but also about personal identity. Exactly, exactly. Um, one of the things that, um, that I discovered as I talked to elders was that all of them had what I call an encounter. That is, they had a particular experience or a set of experiences that really sort of shook up how they understood the world. And um, those encounters tended to revolve around... Um, some encounter with an injustice or new kinds of information about black history, black culture, that really led my interlocutors to rethink, you know, their relationship to the past, to rethink who they are and so on, and then to take this journey to reconnect themselves um, to this ancient past and this modern past. So maybe we could tell our listeners a bit about the past that uh, that your your interviews 
uh, discovered? Because, I mean, reading uh, the opening chapters of Becoming Rasta, and I should remind listeners that uh, we're speaking to Professor Charles Price. He's the author of Becoming Rasta, uh, Origins of Rastafari Identity in Jamaica. It's a history that is just, is really, you know, not known to uh, to Americans. And I, I wonder, I mean, how many Jamaicans are aware of of that kind of history of all the different riots and and the different movements. So maybe if you could take our listeners through some of that, it would help explain um, some of those encounters. Okay, so let, let me give the give the listeners some context. Um, I think if we want to identify precursors to the Rastafari, I think one of the key themes, one of the key strands that we need to keep close attention to is that of Ethiopianism. And Ethiopianism is uh, a racialized ideology pretty much, um, that has very moral, political, and religious, religious overtones. And this ideology dates back to mid-1700s, late-1700s, in both Jamaica and the United States. And, um, you know, I talked earlier about this religious, uh, excuse me, I talked about um, this romantic version of, of, um, of black nationalism. Well, in some ways, Ethiopianism is the um, basis of this, all right? Because what was happening is that um, under slavery, many uh, Africans were interpreting the King James Bible um, through a very racialized lens. And they began to see themselves as modern incarnations, or I should say present-day, for that time, incarnations of the Hebrews under the rule of Pharaoh. And therefore, they expected that a Messiah, God, would lead them out of bondage into freedom and liberation. And the connection here between uh, Ethiopianism in the United States and Jamaica is George Lyle. And George Lyle was a slave um, uh, who, who was owned by a plantation owner in South Carolina. And Lyle founded uh, one of the first black congregations in the United States. Um, he founded the first black church, the Ethiopian Baptist Church in Savannah, Georgia. And after the War of Independence, um, Lyle and his Tory master fled to Jamaica, where Lyle also established um, the first Ethiopian, excuse me, the first Baptist church, which he also named the Ethiopian Baptist Church. So what we have here is a sort of link between um, slavery in the United States and slavery in Jamaica, and, and situated in this is this religious and this activist link. Because what we see now is, is that um, as Native Baptists, uh, Native baptism evolves um, under the guidance of George Lyle. It really holds strongly um, to race, to blackness, as a central part of its religious teachings. And we'll see that the Native Baptists become tied up in several rebellions. Um, in fact, some of the leaders of these rebellions are Native Baptist preachers. So if we look at the Sam Sharp Rebellion in 1831, 1832, excuse me, 1830, yeah, 1831, we'll see that um, Sharp really was inspired by the King James Bible, and it was a sort of motivation for him to pursue, but to understand freedom and to pursue freedom, and um, Sharp and uh, a core group of slaves had a quite serious rebellion in Jamaica that actually motivated Britain to um, abolish slavery uh, by 1834. Now, Native baptism again continues um, and, and, and rears its head again in 1865 in a very important way 
when another preacher, Paul Bogle, native Baptist preacher, leads um, what comes to be called the Morant Bay Rebellion. Well, in this rebellion, again, race is very central to the rebellion, but also the understanding and the plight of black people in Jamaica. And so one of the key themes, I would argue, is that the Rastas um, really are a sort of modern incarnation of this theme, this thread of Ethiopianism that goes all the way back to the 1700s. And it seems like, um, so Ethiopianism is kind of, you know, the, the same way the, the, you know, the Israelites or the, the, the Hebrews were led out of Egypt and looking for the land of milk and honey. Is, is Ethiopia um, kind of a, a, a similar idea in that it is um, a land for displaced people? Exactly. That's, that's a very good point. Um, and, and in a sense, it, it provides um, not only a sense of identity, because I should also point out that, you know, probably well into the 1830s, Ethiopian was a name used um, for black people, for Africans. They were called Ethiopians. Yeah, it was very. So, I'm sorry. It was very interesting reading about that in in the book because it really it really shows the the uh, the the context or the the history of um, you know the the term Ethiopians. I didn't realize that that it had been a, a term used to describe black people. Right, and so um, we have that happening actually, but we also have the usage of Ethiopian in the King James Bible to also refer to Africans. And, and so we have uh, a sort of uh, very conscious awareness of this use of Ethiopian as an identification, as an association with black, but also this connection to uh, a, a, a very um, rich uh, biblical past. And um, some people began to imagine a connection between the present-day Ethiopians and the Ethiopians of the past. I want to remind listeners, they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Justice. We're speaking with Professor Ross Charles Price, He's the author of Becoming Rasta. And uh, we're taking a look at the uh, origins of uh, Rastafari. So, uh, you know, in talking about the, the, the history, we talk about uh, a lot of these rebellions and uh, ultimately uh, those who were integral in the, the formation of of black identity in Rastafari were treated as pariahs. Explain the threat that uh, that they posed to uh, to the British. Ah, the threat. All right. Well, the threat had many different sides, Jared. And let's see if we can't flesh out a few of them. The first, uh, and, and when I say first, I don't mean that it's ranked number one per se. But the first one that I'll talk about is. Um, the threat in the form of disavowing allegiance to the Queen of England. Because what the earliest Rastas said was, we renounce allegiance to the Queen of England, and instead we swear allegiance to the King of Ethiopia, who at that time was Rastafari. Okay? And so that was threat number one. All right? And that became the grounds for sedition, for being charged with sedition and for arresting these early Rastafari evangelists. So that was one. In a second way, um, the Rastas were seen as a threat, the early Rastas were seen as a threat, in that they were um, formulating a new ideology, a new discourse, right, 
that um, was threatening because it privileged race, it privileged blackness, and it challenged whiteness. And in doing that, um, the British um, recognized that they had a growing threat in their midst. And how did the British recognize this? Well, you know, we should recall that the British had considerable experience, you know, with uh, uprisings among the colonized people in their different colonies. So, for instance... um, the British had, uh, well, it wasn't only the British, but the, the, the Germans and the Belgians um, had to put down a rebellion in Central Africa, which was called a Nyabingi Rebellion. Okay? And so from the beginning, the Rastafari was seen as a threat. And this threat would evolve. It would take many different forms. But well into the 60s, the Rastafari was seen as a threat. Um, and they were seen as a threat to the established order and to eventually the state. I think your preface uh, puts, it, puts it best. You, you draw upon the work of uh, Franz Fanon talking about um, how uh, blackness is uh, salvation for uh, miseducation, de- is it racination? Is that how you pronounce it? And, opp- yeah. and, and oppression. And it's, I think you just put it really well that, you know, when when your allegiance is no longer to to country or to a ruling power, but to to something higher, uh, a sense of identity, then uh, power loses hold over you. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and it also motivated people to um, to risk dangers that they otherwise might not have risked because they had such firm commitment to this belief and to these uh, to their identity. Well, let me ask a, a question. I know we spoke last night, and uh, I, I don't want to offend either you or listeners out there, but it seems that um, Rastafarianism um, is is both a, a faith, but also a movement for social justice. Is that a mm-hmm. fair um, description? And can you maybe discuss the two strains? Yeah, I think it's a fair description. And if anything, I would I would just suggest that you take off the ism part. All right, that, okay. would, that would be my only suggestion. Perfect. Um, in many ways, I think the Rastafari have much in common with many different religions. I mean, we could even um, look at the evolution of Christianity, right? And that it emerges with a very strong movement orientation, and then sort of movement focus waxes and wanes over time, and it also becomes much more complex. Um, in the case of the Rastafari, the, the movement part had a lot to do um, with the repression that the Rastas faced from society. So on the one hand, you have a people who are really developing a, a belief and value system around justice, about reclaiming the past, about valorizing blackness, um, recognizing the evils of slavery and the oppression of colonization, all right, and um, at the same time, you know, perhaps they would have been content to, to really just develop and pursue their own beliefs and faith, but at the same time you had the society actually pressing against them uh, in different phases, actually trying to eradicate and eliminate them. So what I'm trying to say there is, is that the, the movement aspect uh, is stronger and more recognizable at some points in time than at others. And I would say that right now the movement aspect is not as uh, powerful as, as it has been in the past. We're speaking with uh, Professor Charles Price, the author of uh, Becoming Rasta. 
So tell listeners, pick some of your favorite uh, case studies, some of the, the people that you uh, you met, and um, talk about their encounters. How or why did they decide to uh, to adopt Rastafari? Right. Well, what I tried to do was, you know, based on all of the stories that I collected, um, the life histories, the life stories, I saw a pattern, and the pattern took three general forms, and that people's pathway toward Rastafari um, involved an encounter that took the form of a vision or a dream, or visions and dreams, repeated visions and dreams. They were what I call real-world encounters. Um, And then there were uh, just a few instances of people who had actually been socialized into the faith from childhood. So I'll just talk briefly about each one of those and use an exemplar that I think um, forcefully conveys um, exactly what I'm talking about. So if we talk about um, divisions and dreams, um, many of of my uh, elder interlocutors um, really began their journey toward Rastafari as a result of a series of dreams, and in these dreams were often images of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. And if we take Prophetess Esther, for instance, um, one of the interesting things that comes out is, is that, along with the focus on the religious and racial aspects, is definitely, in most cases, a justice piece. All right, There's a focus on justice. So in the case of Prophetess, she begins hearing these voices at a very tender age, perhaps, uh, eight or nine years old. And the voices are Christ and Selassie talking to her, as, you know, talking to her at this young age. And over the years, as she tells the story, what they're really telling her is, is that she needs to help bring her people home, home to Africa, because they've been in bondage too long. So there's not only the focus on Africa, uh, uh, repatriation, home to Africa, but also the focus on the injustices of slavery and colonialism, all right? And in several cases, she names the British and condemns the British, all right, for their oppression. So, so that's one sort of example of a narrative, right? Um, and so she has these visions, she has these dreams of these uh, voices, Selassie and Christ talking to her. Another example are sort of what I call real-world encounters. That is, people see things that really shake them up. Right, shake them up in a way that it's it's more than just an instance of, say, for instance, discrimination or racism, right, or injustice. But it shakes them up so deeply that it leads people to question the way that they understand the world, their current view of the world. So um, Brother Yendis, as I call him in the book, is a good example of that. And again, at a very early age, um, he tells a story of walking uh, with his father toward the market, and he sees a policeman, you know, Babylon, come and turn over the cart of a Rasta man. And so you can imagine, Jared, uh, you know, as a child, you see this happening, you might ask, and he's with his father, he said, you know, Father, why did he do that? And the father says, that's a Rasta. And every time Brother Yendis inquires about this, he gets the same answer, answer excuse me, that's a Rasta. And so he said what he began to sense, that there was something wrong with the Rasta said. There was something wrong, but there was nothing that he could see wrong, 
So he really started paying attention to them, and actually what he discovered was the opposite, that here were the people focused on love, right, on peace, on liberation. And, you know, this really attracted him, so he set out on this journey to learn more about them, and he eventually becomes the Rasta leader. Um, another example would be Rasta Ivy, who, you know, at the time, you know, I knew her, she was probably one of the oldest living Rasta women. And she was one of those people who provided that tangible connection, say, between the Bedward movement, and, you know, I didn't talk about the Bedward movement, but Bedward was another Native Baptist preacher who became uh, a threat to the colonial order because he started preaching these fiery sermons about racial redemption and colonial oppression. But uh, Rasta Ivy was a follower of Bedward, but she was also one of the first Rastafari. And so what was happening, um, let's say roughly in the, in the early 20s, were that there were a range of discourses or types of conversation about black deliverance and a black king. All right? And Rasta Ivy was listening all right, to these different arguments about redemption, about race, about liberation. And, you know, when we roll up now to November 1930 and Rastafari is crowned emperor, um, she then begins to put these pieces together and sees on this new emperor now, the Messiah. Okay? So those are sort of three idealized examples of, of ways in which people um, experience these encounters that sort of lead them to pursue um, the Rastafari faith and identity. I want to remind listeners that this is KUCI's Justice or Just Us. We're talking about uh, becoming Rasta. And, you know, one of the things that's that's interesting is that two of the three uh, examples that you discussed involve women. And yes. uh, I did receive some emails from listeners who uh, insisted that I ask about uh, the role of gender in uh, Rastafari because there are... Uh, there's a conception, and, and maybe you could tell us if it's a misconception, uh, that uh, it's a very uh, similar to, to many world uh, world faiths or religions, that it, it tends to be um, a bit patriarchal. And I was wondering... Uh, you, don't, you don't have to uh, temper it. Uh, patriarchal is what people point out, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, there's sort of uh, male dominance. Um, you know, and in some ways, we could say, look to the Old Testament, and in some ways... You know, Rasta people are sort of using the Old Testament as a template for how men and women ought to relate to each other. And to some extent, that is true. But I think that um, it's much more complex than that. And let me see if I can quickly um, point out a couple of things, Jared. First of all, I would say that um, the, the, the ascendance of male domination really happens at a particular point in time. And I would say that we could trace it to the emergence of the dreadlocks among the Rastafari. Right? Because and that, if, and that's a, say, if I could just interject, that's a capital D. So we're not talking that's about... That's a capital D. Right? Yeah, we're not talking yeah. about the fashion. We're talking about right. uh, a sect. Okay. Yes, the sect within the Rastafari, yes. Um, and um, if we sort of focus, say, on the period between 1930, 1931, 32, up through... 1955-60, what we'll see, and we can actually see this in the news stories, is that women were very prominent in the, in, in the Rasta faith and movement. And we can see that in, in how uh, women were involved in the protests 
They were involved in the uprisings, and they went to jail right along with men, okay? And um, I would suggest that, you know, it was the emergence of the Rastafari and the focus on, you know, the importance of the Old Testament and sort of connecting um, to that biblical past that really provides a context for a new kind of gender dynamics that um, persists well into the 1970s. Um, now, I would argue that women, uh, Rastafari, are again, you know, taking their rightful place um, among the Rastafari, visible and up front, which was the case, I would say, you know, roughly between the 30s and 1960. And so part of what we have to recognize is that the gender dynamics have changed over time. Um, they've oscillated. Um, do you have any specific point you'd like for me to draw out? No, I, I think you, you, you know, you touched upon it. And I, I do think that, you know, there, there is a bit of, um, I don't know, exceptionalism when, uh, you know, people are quick to focus on maybe gender imbalances in, um, in one faith, but fail to, to recognize them in their own faith or, or see them in other cultures and fail to recognize them in, in their own. But I, I do, uh, I, I just think it's very, very interesting that, that two of the three case studies that you, you, you mentioned kind of um, on their own dispel this, this notion that it is a very one-sided, uh, a one-sided faith. So, and let me make another point, if, if, if I might, Jared. Yes. And, you know, um, on, on, the, on the more contemporary side, I would say, let's say roughly post, you know, 1970, is, you know, you will hear many Rasta men tell you that, um, you know, it, it's the role of the man to guide the daughter or, or the woman into the faith, right? That the woman needs uh, the guidance and the supervision of the man, all right? And, you know, if we go back to what you just pointed out, if, you know, in all of the stories I collected, there was only one case that came close to that. And, and in fact, it really didn't. And what happened was women really uh, came into the faith on their own. They had their own encounters, their own experience, and they, they, they socialized themselves into the faith on their own without male supervision. Yeah. Well, if I could ask a, a, a somewhat personal question, um, so how did you discover uh, or become Rastafari? I mean, how how did uh, this this movement reach? Uh, you were you were born in New York, is that correct? Yes, so yes, 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 yes. What was if it's not too much to ask? What was your path? Okay, and, and here's an important point I think, um, and maybe I can use myself as an example. One is that the discovery process. Um, the encounter really is quite protracted, okay? And you have an encounter or a series of encounters, series of encounters, and, and what I've seen is that people revisit these encounters, you know, on this path toward identity, uh, on this path of identity transformation. And my own case um, also, uh, my own situation fits that, 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 um, that case, right, that pattern. And, you know, uh, my grandfather was a, was a Baptist minister, all right, and um, a black community in the South. Um, and at that time, the South was racially segregated, so he literally um, preached to a black church, right? 
And so we attended church, and this was also the case of many of my Rasta elders, right? Um, they also came from Christian homes um, as well. And so I started noticing these anomalies, right? Couldn't make sense of them at the time. So let's just say, for instance, when I was nine or so, um, you know, we'd be sitting in church, and I'd be looking around, and everybody in the church is black, right? But, you know, you look at the fan, and there's white Jesus, right? And so here's this picture of Jesus, right? And he's blonde, well, or brown-haired, he has long hair, he has a beard, he has blue eyes. And so, you know, I would wonder, like, you know, why is he white? And, you know, we're black, you know, is, is, you know what's, what's that about, right? Is, is it because white people are better than black people? So I would ask my grandmother these questions, right? But she wouldn't answer them, right? She would say, ah, you know, don't, don't ask those kind of questions. So like, you know, Brother Yendis, I too started to wonder, you know, what's going on there? And then another thing that really kind of bothered me from a young age was the sort of way that the collection process worked in the church, right? So we would take up these three collections, and, um, you know, there'd be one for the church, there'd be one for the minister, and there'd be one for the, um, uh, the sick or the shut-in is what we call them in those days, right? Basically the poor, right? Mm-hmm. The infirm. And so, you know, the first collection would be for the preacher, right? So let's just say the preacher get $150 from the congregation, right? Second collection come around. This one's for the church, right? This is for church maintenance, right? Let's just say that one gets 75 right? Now, the last collection now is for the, 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 the infirm, right? Um, the poor, the sick, the shut-in, right? You know, that collection might be $10, $9, $11, and so, again, I would uh, ask my grandmother, I'd say, you know, I, I thought uh, uh, Christ, you know, was, was supporting the poor. Why didn't, why, didn't, why didn't the poor get the most money and the preacher get the, you know, smaller amount? And, again, you know, I never got satisfactory answers. And so those kinds of questions plagued me for a long time. And um, even, you know, even at that time, I was hearing these songs. Like, I remember a song um, by Bob Marley called Exodus, right? This was a long time ago. And so all of these ideas and questions were sort of um, uh, crystallizing, um, holding my attention, causing me to look for answers to these questions. And um, while I was a migrant farm worker, that is when I came into uh, contact with the embodiment of Rastafari, that is, some Rasta people, and I began to really um, learn the faith from elders. And there's a lot of what you mentioned. Uh, there's a quote from your uh, in your book from uh, Marcus Garvey that touches upon uh, this whole idea of race formation and black identities. And he says uh, he writes, "While our God has no color, uh, yet it is human to see everything through one's own spectacles. And since the white people have seen their God through the white spectacles." Uh, we have now only started to see our God through our own spectacles. And then he goes on to say, uh, we Negroes uh, believe in the God of Ethiopia, the everlasting God, and we shall worship him through the spectacles of Ethiopia. And I think that's uh, perhaps a nice parallel to, to your path. Exactly. And that's a very apt quote to point out, Jared. Well, we're uh, running uh, just about out of time, and I was hoping okay. we could end on maybe a, a more... Uh, light note uh, not that not everything was heavy but we've we focused a lot on the past and on the, yes. the the faith aspect maybe we could just uh give kind of like a everything you ever wanted to know about rastafari but 
we're afraid to ask for our listeners. Um, and that's part of what I like about uh, your book, that uh, a lot of questions that might be lingering are kind of answered. So we talked a bit about the dreadlocks with a capital D. Just explain yes. to our listeners, if you can, the the rationale or the origins of the uh, dreadlocks with a lowercase d. Okay, um, lowercase d. I, I'm not quite sure what you mean by lowercase. No. Well, I mean, just like there, there are certain things like y- your book talks about where dreadlocks come from as a, I guess, if we want to call it a hairstyle, but I don't want to okay. cheapen it by calling it a style. And then make, you right, also right. talk about, you know, use of the word dread and blackheart yeah. man. And I just think for, for um, people who are more into the culture and the music and the themes of of peace and love and justice who might not know some of the more, you know, the, yeah, the, yeah. the etiology of some of these uh, styles. Well, that would I think be one of the first things that will surprise many of your listeners is that um, the rest of people have not always been dreadlocks, okay? That emerges at a particular point in time, and, you know, you'll get different answers from different people, but, you know, we're talking somewhere in the, you know, mid to late 40s that we find the first clear evidence of a faction, that is, a, a set of people within the Rasta, the larger Rasta community, who are inculcating and promoting a different view. And these people, um, these uh, groups, are, are, are really um, directly connecting themselves to the Old Testament, in particular certain passages from the Old Testament, certain books of the Old Testament, um, let's say Leviticus and Numbers, for instance, about uh, things like uh, body maintenance. So, for instance, um, thou shalt not put the razor upon thy beard or thy head, all right? So that was interpreted to mean that one's ear, all right, one's wool ought to be allowed to grow. And we have to give this additional context now. And if we talk about race and about blackness, you know, one of the things that uh, comes to the fore is black people's issues around here, okay? And for the longest, we have had an aversion to natural hair, all right? And instead have preferred uh, to process our hair, to straighten it, to curl it, to make it look like the hair of white people are if you're a man to, to keep it uh, trimmed and neat and so on. And so this emer- these emergent factions... Um, were called the dreadlocks because they did not cut the hair. Um, and they were distinctive. And they recognized that by not trimming their hair, uh, by not trimming their beards, that they repulsed Jamaicans, all right, that they instilled fear in the heart of these Jamaicans. And so... Um, or, or dread, dare we say. Yes, and that was the whole idea, <laughs> exactly. was to, to inspire dread, you know. And so when we look now, uh, Jared, at how popular dreadlocks are now, and I take your suggestion and use the lowercase d, you know, people spend a lot of time now um, going to the salon, they, they twist their, their hair and all of that. And really the, 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 the conception uh, motivating those early dreadlocks was to instill fear in the hearts of people, the wicked who looked at them and saw these fierce warriors, all right, um, who embrace in this Old Testament Nazarite vow. Um, and, and so over time, the dreadlocks becomes, the dreadlocks with the capital D become what we could call a hegemonic group among the Rastafari. So they gradually 
excuse me, displace um, what we call the combsums, right? That is, these were Rasta people who perhaps grew their hair out, maybe like an afro or something like that, um, but they trimmed their hair some, so we call them combsums, right? And, and so that's a part that I, perhaps a lot of people don't recognize is that um, the Rasta people did not begin as dreadlocks. The dreadlocks began as a small part of the Rasta people. So when you see, um, you know, rock bands where the lead singers have uh, dreadlocks, or you see, you know, dreadlocks really popular among uh, teenagers, you know, the skater culture or whatnot, is that considered a source of uh, pride that um, what was once considered a source of dread has now become accepted? Um, or is it considered maybe an offensive form of co-optation? Because I know that there are debates amongst uh, different people in, in that regard. Yes, and I think you really, you, you hit the nail on the head there. And um, I hear two basic arguments. One is, is that the fact that uh, that dreadlocks with the small d are so prevalent now is this uh, testament to the power of Rasta people. Um, that, you know, by growing locks, you provide, or at least um, there is the opportunity for the person to begin now to to really um, probe into uh, Rasta faith and identity, so potentially becoming a Rasta at some point in the future, right? So you have that point of view, right? And then there are those who really see it as profane and as disrespectful of, of Rasta culture and identity. And do you have an opinion on that? Do I have an opinion on that? Um, I like to respect people's culture and identity. And I, for instance, uh, Jared, wouldn't put on a Native American war bonnet, right, and right. walk around with that because it's sacred to those people. So I, my view is, is that I, I, I do see it as uh, a bit disrespectful. And it's, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting uh, debate that... Uh, you know, just it seems never ending. I mean, that's kind of the way the way I think uh, think of it. It, it. I mean, I I will confess to have have tried to grow them in in the past, and and um, certainly have an interest in the the social movement of of Rastafari. But at the same time, um, when you see Tams with built in, you know, dreadlocks sold at Halloween costume stores, but you don't <laughs> you don't see. Hasidic Jew costumes sold at uh, Halloween stores and the like, one begins to to really have to question uh, what they're doing. You know, it it there there really is that kind of um, disrespect, and I think part of it is the, is you know not to blame people. They they're often unaware that there's there's a deep uh, religious or faith. Uh, and, and I agree with you completely on that. And you know, it, you know, I wouldn't also um, overlook the fact that. Um, you know, there might be some racial dimension. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because, well, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, several years ago, I was working with a group of students at a local high school who were trying to change their mascot from the Redskins or the Chiefs or, or whatnot to, to something that was uh, not racialized. And a lot of locals, you know, I'm in Orange County here, which is a rather conservative, uh, you know, county, they didn't understand, they didn't appreciate the label of of racism, not calling p- 
people racist, but the very right. mascot racist. And right. we tried to point out you'd, you'd never have, you know, the Orange County Jews or you'd never have the Orange County, you know, uh, you know, pick, pick, you know, the Orange, the Orange County handicapped or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with the Washington Redskins. We might feel that it's uh, it's a racist mascot, but that doesn't mean that the millions of people that watch them every Sunday are even aware of the issues or the the um, the offense that that is being taken. So um, it's it's a difficult topic that we're we're probably not going to be able to resolve in the uh, couple minutes we have left. So, sure. uh, Professor Price, tell our listeners uh, where they can uh, find out more about your book if you have a website or if you want to give out NYU Press's website. Yeah, why don't we um, direct the listeners to the New York University Press website? I don't have the URL uh, in front of me, but you can simply uh, type or Google New York University Press. It's actually, um, I've got it here because I'm holding okay. your book. It's www.nyupress.org. So mm-hmm. it's www.nyupress.org. Uh, the book is titled Becoming Rasta Origins of Rastafari Identity in Jamaica. It is... Uh, I'm amazed at how much information is packed into this 250-page book. It is uh, really a treat, and um, it's great that you were able to capture the voices of, you know, some of the the early uh, Rastafari. Um, It's really uh, quite a contribution you've made to the literature, and I thank you so much for joining us this morning. All right, and I give thanks for the opportunity as well, and thanks to all the listeners. Great. Take care. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye.